This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in design, development, and integration of technology into K-12, as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a national publication covering the intersection of tech and education. Plenty of groups these days are trying to reinvent college. And that's not surprising at a time when higher ed is under fire for ever-rising costs, high student debt rates, and even questions about the value of a degree. On one hand, there are entrepreneurs and foundations rushing to try to offer higher ed at new shapes and sizes and formats and price points. Meanwhile, at colleges... Researchers and innovators are diving into learning science and experimenting with new teaching methods as well. But those groups don't always talk to each other or even know what the other are working on. This week for the podcast, we're talking with someone who's trying to build more connective tissue between academia and industry when it comes to reinventing college. That guest is Mitchell Stevens, a Stanford University professor who's the director of the Center for Advanced Research Through Online Learning. He describes the higher ed landscape today as an entrepreneurial and philanthropic Wild West, which he finds exciting, but also full of tough challenges, such as how to safeguard privacy as data and algorithms become central to learning. I sat down with Stevens recently at the ASU GSV Summit, a large gathering of those entrepreneurs and funders eyeing higher ed. We were in the conference exhibit hall, so you're going to hear some of the hubbub around us. Here are highlights from the conversation. We're joined today by Mitchell Stevens, who is an education professor at Stanford University, mm-hmm. and also sometimes, yeah, weighing in from the afar to see what's going on. And so thank you so much. My pleasure. For, for being here. So to kind of start us off, if you could kind of walk us through for a minute how online education and some of these digital learning tools are changing and how higher ed is changing kind of as a result in the last five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, there's a narrative here of amazing things coming out of Silicon Valley, but there's also Mm -hmm. a narrative about changes in higher ed. Mm -hmm. And so how would you kind of set the stage? Yeah, I would say there's three major things to think about over the last five to seven years. One is the dramatic decline in the cost of computational capacity and computer memory. Is that my smartphone's ability to exist? Absolutely. Your smartphone's ability to exist, which makes access to these technologies, both for users, but also for entrepreneurs, much more affordable than it was before. The second is the unabated cost escalation in the post-secondary sector, which has not abated at all. And given the current politics of the United States, the line between people who have college degrees and those who don't has become much more controversial and contested than ever before. So there's a kind of urgency to create educational opportunities for a wider variety of Americans at different price points, whether or not those things are called college. And the third is the current presidential administration has probably the most laissez-faire policy approach to uh, higher education delivery that we've seen in since the existence of the Department of Education. So you put so those decades, three, yeah. you put those three things together and you get the conditions for a kind of entrepreneurial and philanthropic Wild West, which is what we're sitting in the middle of this afternoon. A Wild West. And so I know that it's probably gone beyond maybe a simple conversation of good or bad. This is good or this bad is, is where we moot. are. Good or bad is a moot point. I mean, we're living in a world in which 
Harvard and Stanford have learning management systems in their classrooms right along with broad access, comprehensive universities. All of our students and all of our faculty across the whole sector are in one way or another online. And so um, the distinction between online versus face-to-face education has just become moot. And yet, I feel like your role, from what I've seen as an outsider watching this space, has been a little bit of a commenting here and there and trying to shape some issues that remind people of some some things. And one of the things has been privacy mm-hmm. and data. This new reality where you just you know mentioned casually, places like Harvard have these learning management systems, which are just like scooping up all this data on behavior of students. And maybe some of it's not that important, but it's becoming maybe more able to be tracked. And these data sets by sometimes private companies are growing. You know, that is, on my view, both an organizational and an ethical frontier. A learning management system is in what we used to call my classroom as the faculty member. Yeah, you had total control of that. My classroom, I controlled it when the door closed. That classroom was my purview. Now I share that classroom with digitally mediated technologies like the one that's carrying this conversation right now. Sure. So whose data are those? Are they the professors? Are they the students who are providing interactive data streams? Are they the learning management systems? Are they the universities? The answer is is probably yes. All of those parties are somehow implicated in the joint venture that is education data. And what I and several others across the country have been trying to do is have an ethical conversation that kind of gets out in front of that domain so that when an inevitable data catastrophe happens, we won't start the ethical conversation from zero. And I don't want to get too doomsday here, but what would be a potential doomsday scenario that you're describing, right? Um, What kind of thing are we talking uh, about? Just a a completely hypothetical situation in which the, um, the son or daughter of a family that has been quite generous to a highly selective private research university, her identity, her or his identity, gets tied to the clickstream data describing um, her behavior in an intro-level comparative literature class, which is on race and sexuality in 20th century America. Okay. For example. Right. Um, That's a pretty benign risk, in a sense, right? That's a small thing that could happen, but could create a huge controversy. Something in the catastrophe zone might be um, linking student records at, say, Arizona State University with um, records from government administrative data, like Arizona doesn't have an income tax, but uh, <laughs> but California does, right? right. Um, linking uh, California income tax data with uh, school completion of named Californians or Arizonans. That's the sort of risk that will inevitably happen as we get more sophisticated with integrating different kinds of data to describe and understand processes that we might really care about, like college persistence and earnings return. So in other words, the system's not built to have those things happen, but it ends up being a side effect potentially? Yes. Um, the sociologist at Yale a University, Charles Perot, calls them normal accidents. They are, they are accidents that happen by virtue of the sheer complexity of a system. The Boeing air crashes are perfect examples. Wow, of, yeah, of, that, that, that uh, happened basically, just a week ago, yeah. just, No matter how carefully you try to engineer something, the sheer complexity of the thing that you're engineering creates risk. Huh. So that's that's how I talk about inevitability. That's you know? so interesting. And so the question then is, you know, what do you do? It's almost like, how do you prevent the crash, right? Because you still want to prevent, can you prevent it? Or are we just going to have to live with some trade-offs that are tough? So uh, we had 
two convenings. We is I and my colleagues at the Ithaca SNR group in New York, and also colleagues at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Michigan. These are the ones at SLMR, these gatherings? The conference grounds in Pacific Grove, California. We modeled those convenings specifically after some other meetings that also occurred at that facility in the 1970s in advance of the sequencing of the human genome. A group Mm. of of biomedical scientists came together to think about what ethical practice would look like in the wake of that scientific revolution. Did that mitigate the risks of human genome sequencing? No. Did it create a framework for making decisions about responsible behavior? Yes. That's what we've been trying to do with this. I see. And we actually think that the sequencing of the human genome is a good metaphor for what might be happening with Hmm. the instrumentation of teaching, learning, and the relationship between education and the life force. We can now instrument that phenomenon in ways that just weren't possible until the computational revolution. So, for example, to the extent that we really want to know, like my colleague, our colleague, the economist Raj Teddy at Harvard, wants to know about earnings returns to different kinds of college degrees. And social mobility of going to college. The way we're going to have to do that is to integrate data from public and private sources in ways that they haven't been integrated before. Is that necessary for scientifically informed social policy? Absolutely. Does it bring risks of exposure to the men and women who are described by those data? Absolutely. Sure. But on my view, there's no not going there as a responsible educator. Here's a quick break with a message from our sponsor. Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home. And it's now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well-prepared to practice their unique, multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government, military, and to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That address once more is emporia.edu grad. Now back to the conversation. And, you know, one of the things that is interesting at a conference like this, ASU GSV Summit, which is now its 10th year, thing is growing, there's thousands of people here, but it's a certain set of people, a certain set of type of people that are here. Yes. And it seems like you're interested in having a conversation about who gets to build these tools in a way, right? Or Well, yes. I mean, I think it's no little irony that the primary meeting of educational researchers, the American Educational Research Association, is meeting in Toronto at exactly the same time as this meeting. It is this day or this week? We are on the other side of the moon from the educational research establishment. I think that tells you something both about education research but also about the education technology industry. These are two communities that have not seemed to have much use for each other. It's like Um, both of them don't realize the other conference is that day. It's as if they almost don't realize that the other exists. And on my view, that's a very large problem, not only for the future of education in this country, but also for science, because Hmm. uh, the people who are doing something called science are not connected to the people who are doing something called 
the ed tech industry. And right, right. There's only so much cumulative improvement you can have in any sector when there isn't some sort of collective discourse about cumulative improvement. That's what science is, essentially. Sure. Um, Don't you think higher ed is a place where this should get this right? I mean, this is... I absolutely think we should. We are the place that should get this right. And I have been working with colleagues at Stanford and again at other institutions, Carnegie Mellon, Michigan, Harvard and MIT, Berkeley, Irvine and elsewhere to sort of think about how we could build what a colleague of mine calls connective tissue between academia and industry in which both academia and industry are going to benefit from that hmm. association. At present, a lot of the ed tech sector is really organized around proprietary recipes that are tied to lots of promises that they're selling to their clients. But if you get under the hood, there may or may not be very much science there. Similarly, educational researchers may not be asking the kinds of questions that are immediately relevant to the entrepreneurs in this sector. So Interesting. what I'm yeah. trying to do, what I and my colleagues at Stanford are trying to do for education is very much what engineers did with industry during the Cold War, which is they cooperated with each other on the presumption that industry offered the scale that Washington needed to fight the Cold War. Academia offered the training and norms of disciplined peer review that really got the science going. And industry affiliate relationships in engineering are completely normal. A good bit of academic computer science is underwritten by industry on the logic that that science helps the industry. Sure, right, right not just um, a gift. Well, it's yes. like a little bit of a gift, it's but it's a... In the Mousian sense, by which <laughs> meant, um, each party is giving a gift to the other with some expectation of reciprocation. Got it. But it's not a consulting relationship. Right, right. it's not a order up for... It's not a quid made pro for order. Right. relationship. Yes, that's what McKinsey is for, right? A university sure. is a place where you're supposed to sort of invest in scientific discovery over the long term. That's what this sector, I think, desperately needs. And we're actively trying to find ways to get the incentives right so that industry recognizes the value of what it's contributing to and the universities recognize that this sector, the ed tech sector and the private capital that supports it, is going to be an important part of the future of education in this country and worldwide. It seems that I noticed you did not couch education researchers as the good guy and industry as the bad guy. I think but but sometimes important. that happens. I would say that as a group, educational researchers have been highly skeptical of private capital. They have long presumed, uh, I believe erroneously presumed, that education is primarily a public good that right. should be supported by government and philanthropic resources. And they have been allergic, I would say, to the notion that education is simultaneously a civic project and a business sector. On my view, education in the United States has always had what I call a joint venture quality. It's hmm. always been a cooperative, shall we say, public-private partnership between government, philanthropy, and industry. But the character of that partnership is changing at this moment in history. And frankly, government investment in education is steadily declining. And I don't anticipate a world in which Americans are going to have the political will to raise the tax dollars that are going to be needed to provide the educational opportunities that our own people need for the next 25 years. That capital will come from the private sector. And on my view, responsible educators should recognize that fact and then 
work with those sources of capital to think through what kind of disciplined educational sector we would like to have, right? One that will be both civic and commercial at the same time. What would that look like? How would it be responsibly governed? How would educational providers that are not conventional schools or colleges and universities demonstrate that they are responsible civic actors? that they deserve the trust of the federal government and Americans' tax dollars, how will that kind of ecosystem get built? And I'm ambitious enough to think that the norms of scientific peer review that have governed higher education and research within universities have a fighting chance at providing the framework for thinking through what a responsible education sector would look like. Now, I understand you're working on a new center at Stanford. Can you talk at all uh, about or thinking about it? Or, or... Uh, it's a project on what we're calling education enterprise. And it's, okay. its purpose is precisely what I just suggested, that education in the United States has always been a joint venture between government, philanthropy, and the private sector. And that's been part of its magic and fertility, its hmm. dynamism. Mm -hmm. But that joint venture is changing, and the kinds of players who are now providing education are not even necessarily schools. We can no longer presume that the primary parties that provide education are schools, colleges, and universities. There's right? certainly a lot of other types of things here at this right, meeting. Exactly. Yeah, you know, companies that are boot camps or whatever. What is Coursera? What is LinkedIn Learning, right? Yeah. These are education providers that we don't have a governance framework for accommodating, right? Sure, so sure. Um, if we were to give these new players the opportunity to demonstrate that they were responsible civic actors, what would that opportunity be? And on my view, at least one component of that opportunity would be an ability for educational providers to make contributions of data and financial support and even personnel to academic projects of scientific improvement that would take place over a long period of time. Who's a good apple? Who's a bad apple? We don't know, but a good apple would at least invest in transparent longitudinal observation of its products and services so that tomorrow we would be able to divide, shall we say, the wheat from the chaff might be a better enough. Sure. And I think we had somebody on this series earlier today from Carnegie Mellon. Yes talking about the release of their software yes. tools. Yes. I'm curious, is that the kind of thing I am, that I am, could... I am fully enthusiastic of Carnegie Mellon's efforts in that regard. They have been very good to think with and very ambitious in the education technology space. There's no doubt about it. You know, from the university that brought you Canvas Till's Open Learning Initiative. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's that's what they're open sourcing yes, is some of that software. of learning analytics and education data mining. That's an ambitious, forward-thinking university that is doing the kind of activity that I think more and more universities are going to have to do in their own way. Sure. I mean, what do you think is the biggest concern attending this conference, which I think you mentioned it's your first time attending ASUGSV, yes. and what are your concerns about what you're seeing in the trends, whether it's here or just Yeah, elsewhere. I'll tell you another university I admire is Arizona State University. Right, and which I guess is a sponsor of this conference. ambitious and accomplished leader, Michael Crow. I've been saying to colleagues and friends here, Michael Crow and their friends at Global Silicon Valley created Main Street. We are sitting on huh. Main Street Education Technology USA, but it's a Main Street on a frontier town on a wild west that has a lot of opportunity, but a lot of risk for new players. Sure. And there's no sheriff in this town. And that sheriff is not going to come from Washington anytime soon. Sheriffs cost money. So if we are going to tame this West and take advantage of its huge opportunities, but sure. also 
make the risks of coming here considerably lower for schools and students and funding agencies. We're going to have to create some mechanism for disciplining ourselves as a sector. And what I frankly fear is that, is that this entire sector will become defined essentially exclusively as an industry and not as an educational project. And we'll wake up one morning and it'll all be governed by the Federal Trade Commission. In my view, that would be a civic mm. disaster if, mm. in, if education in this country comes to be defined exclusively as a business, then we no longer have the value of the joint venture quality that has made American education so flexible and dynamic for 200 years. It's interesting. If I hear you correctly, what it sounds like is first, there's been this disinvestment by the public sector, by state Systematic, governments and longitudinal and, disinvestment. And the risk is that it could go even further and have almost like a disengagement of academics and research not only a, from that's good not only a disengagement of academics in the conventional college and university sector but we'll also have an education data science that's essentially a proprietary science trust us it works right right, right. like um, like a facebook not like or, or google like or whatever, facebook, all the things we like consume right there's a lot of trust us it works in this sector already thing is a lot of it doesn't work yet or there are these things that go wrong, yep. these catastrophes, yes. these data so, catastrophes. Um, and that's where I think having academic institutions that see themselves primarily as arbiters of truth and supporters of systematic research yeah. could make valuable contributions to the sector that other players can't in the same way. Well, I think we're running out of time. I think we are out of time, but okay. I wanted to thank you for doing this and for talking with us and sharing your views. This Thanks has been great. Coming. Thanks, everybody. And thank you for tuning into this series. These will be turned into podcast episodes, the Ed Surge on Air podcast. You can find every Tuesday, wherever you get podcasts. So thank you all for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed and we have had a good time broadcasting from this conference. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. That was fun. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. I'm trying out a new microphone this week for the narration parts here. So hopefully this is an upgrade. As regular listeners know, we alternate between episodes focused on higher education and ones focused on K-12, since EdSearch covers all of education. If you don't already, please subscribe wherever you listen. And if you like the show, take a minute to give us a rating, which will help others find us. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young, with some editing help this week by Nate Secchi, a new intern here. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.